From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Ahead of Independence Day, insight into John and Abigail Adams. Their experience in Europe cemented their hopes for the future of this country. They felt that America had more opportunity, more liberty, and what John always was really striving for was equal justice before the law. DU historian Jeannie Abrams shares her new book, View from Abroad. Also, meet some of the newest Americans. It's always like I grew up in a separate community from those who were citizens, and now just being able to participate in voting is like a huge deal to me. And how Pikes Peak inspired America the Beautiful. You look out and you don't see any boundaries of states. You feel as if you are up above problems. You're in kind of a transcendent realm. When a third wave of COVID-19 hit Colorado in late fall, testing systems and contact tracing intended to protect the state's most vulnerable nursing home residents collapsed, and 1,000 of them died. Colorado's nursing homes became the deadliest in the nation. If you miss the CPR News series, come to CPR.org to listen to the reports, see pictures, and examine the data. How Colorado Caught COVID, the third wave, at CPR.org. This is a special Independence Day edition of Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. As the country celebrates the 4th of July this weekend, we will get new insight into one of the founding fathers, John Adams, and his wife, Abigail. The couple spent a decade overseas, and that experience shaped their vision for America. Historian Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver has written A View from Abroad, the story of John and Abigail Adams in Europe. She spoke with CPR's Carla Jimenez. Why did you want to write about this particular time in John and Abigail Adams' lives? I think most people, of course, know that John and Abigail Adams played a pivotal role in the American Revolution. But I think for most people, the American Revolution stops in America, and um, they know there's fighting going on and there are still wars. But I don't think they realize how pivotal the role was that John Adams played in Europe to end the war and his diplomatic role. So not only was that part fascinating, but also their interactions with the really— with the royalty they met, with the common people, and how it really played a major part in their thinking about the American identity. John Adams was first assigned to France with Benjamin Franklin, but you write that there were some personality clashes between the two. Uh, Why was that? Adams was a very industrious person. He very much focused on the job at hand and the details. And Benjamin Franklin, despite his very famous aphorism of early to bed, early to rise, makes the man wealthy and wise, once he was in France and he was already in his 70s, he very much enjoyed social life in France. And one of his biographers, I think, very astutely pointed out that he had rather a chameleon-like personality, and he could um, move his personality to suit the environment that he was in. And Adams didn't appreciate that Franklin's sociability actually did move diplomacy forward, 
But what really frustrated Adams was most of the clerical work and the heavy lifting was really left to him. What were John's overall impressions of France while he was there? They they were mixed. Um, he loved the politeness of the of the French. He felt they were extremely hospitable and worked very hard to please their guests. But um, he just, again, saw so much what he felt was excess in the culture. And really, once Abigail gets there, it's very interesting. She writes a very interesting letter to her sister. And she says, if you ask me what the business of life here is in France, I will say it's pleasure from the throne to the footstool. So uh, Abigail felt much the same way then. Yes, yes. They came from a very similar background. John is actually from a more middle farming um, background. Abigail is considered a little higher level class. Her father is a very respected liberal minister um, in her hometown. But they both have kind of imbibed um, the New England lifestyle. In John's first European posting, he left Abigail back in Massachusetts for years. Uh, How did her husband's absence affect her? Well, she berated him on several occasions, but she kind of justified it because she felt he was so important to the American cause. And it was a challenging time. I mean, she had to supervise the farm, all their finances, the children's education, but she rose to the occasion, and I really think it was an opportunity for her. She developed a thriving business, ironically, in luxury goods that they deprecated all the time, calling them fripperies, but she sold lace um, and other trimmings that John sent her from Europe, and she amassed a nice little amount. She invested in some um, property and some uh, you know, other types of investments. So I think it really gave her an opportunity to become more independent and grow on her own. She understood it was for the greater good, but she was upset that her husband had to be gone for so long. It, it makes me think no woman nowadays, I think, would put up with that necessarily. Well, not only did he go once, but he, he came back um, for a short time and he returned again. And again, uh, she and her daughter wanted to come. And again, he said, it's, you know, it's too dangerous. It's too expensive for the whole family. And she said, okay. Now, in all fairness, she had other things keeping her back. She didn't want to leave her younger two sons. Her father was ill. So she, and she was deathly afraid of um, a voyage across the ocean. So she was not that hard and on one level to persuade. But eventually, even John um, becomes so lonely that he says, I just can't pass another winter without you. And so both of them, uh, uh, John's daughter, Nabby, Abigail Jr., and Abigail do voyage across the ocean. And it's, it's quite an experience for them. Was Abigail a woman ahead of her time? In some ways, I think she was. I want to emphasize that Abigail and John, even though he had great respect for her and really valued her opinion, um, it was a pretty typical 18th century marriage where the husband was in charge of the family, the, the wife was subordinate. It was unusual in the sense that, again, as I said, John really listened to her often, asked for her opinion. She was very intelligent and very politically astute. And um, she probably had more leeway than many women. But um, I I think she was ahead of her time in the sense that she was so attuned to what was going on and so well-read 
And I know everyone always refers to her famous letter um, to Jen about remember the ladies. And, and she was asking him to remember the ladies, but it was pretty circumscribed. She was talking really about the rights of coverture where women were not allowed to own property. And so she was asking for specific um, enlargement of rights. And I think that her emphasis on education and learning was also ahead of her time in many ways. John's longest posting was to Great Britain after the Treaty of Paris. So was it awkward for him to be in London right after the U.S. had defeated the British in the Revolution? Well, we talked a little bit about his um, successes. You know, even he felt he wasn't suited to be a diplomat because he told things just as they were and... I, I think, I guess, one um, necessary ingredient for a diplomat is to be able to dissemble and to maybe um, go around things, you know, in a circuitous, you know, route. But I should back up and say that he was one of the strong voices for the 1783 Treaty of Paris that ended the war. And um, he and John Jay and Franklin, but Franklin was sidelined with illness quite a bit of the time, um, the two of them really pushed for American um, success in terms of the treaty, and they really received far more than um, could be expected, and that included land and fishing rights. So um, after that, then he is posted um, to England, and yes, it is a challenge because now he's negotiating with the former enemy. However, he and Abigail were actually both pleased. Um, he was... Uh, I wouldn't say welcome, but he was accepted by King George with a great deal of politeness and respect, and um, uh, really more than they had they had expected. A part of the book that I found particularly funny uh, was when Abigail wrote to, I think, one of her family members back home in America complaining about her British servants. She said that she could replace many of her servants with a single American. What do you think this says about the difference in work culture at the time? Okay, well, this work ethic, remember, they're they're from New England and they have kind of a Puritan background and a really very strong Protestant work ethic. And we find the same thing when she's in Paris. She's appalled at the number of servants. Now, they, they're renting a huge house in Paris with 40 rooms. But um, she's appalled that everyone will only do their assigned job. That's why you need so many. So one uh, maid is only in charge of making beds, and one is in charge of washing the floor. And in, in Paris, you have to, if you're a woman, you have to have your hair dressed every day. And the same thing happens in Great Britain. Um, in London, she has to have a footman and a butler. I mean, these were unheard of, you know, at home. It's certainly on their their level. They're, they're middle class. Throughout their time abroad, both Abigail and John were convinced that life in America was superior to life in Europe. What was it about life in America that they found more satisfying? Well, I should emphasize they did not think that um, Americans were exceptional. John, in particular, felt that um, humans were the same all over, the same challenges, um, etc. Unlike Thomas Jefferson, who who really thought that Americans were a different type of people, and that's why they were so suited to democracy. But they felt that America had more opportunity, more liberty, and what John always was really 
striving for was equal justice um, before the law. He was a great proponent of law, and he said over and over again that America needs to be a government of law, not men, because men, and he meant men in a generic term, but not men because people are fallible. They're too easily influenced um, by, by wealth, as I said, charisma, all those things, and we have to follow the letter of the law. How did John's time abroad inform his later political life and his presidency? I think the experience, first of all, many of the revolutionaries had not had any time abroad like George Washington. So he he saw on the ground what was um, happening. And I think it also, he, he saw how frequently England and France came to blows, um, one war after another, power plays, um, uh, really constantly um, changing the balance of power. So later when he was president, he actually, one of probably his biggest successes, and he was a one-term president for a number of reasons, but there was a great division at the time between England and France, and America was almost on the the brink of war with France, and he was able to calm that down and avoid that war. But again, he also, um, the the French Revolution was a great source of despair for both um, him and for Abigail, and he wanted to make sure nothing like that would be replicated, and he saw in his view, that was what happened when there were excesses of democracy, too much of the people, in quotes, in charge. So he very much wanted a very structured government with checks of power, and he called it, you know, putting power to power to make sure that not one group or any individual would hold too much sway. You've written about Abigail Adams in past books, uh, so you've, you've got to know her as the kind of person that she was. In the process of writing this book, did you learn anything new that surprised you? Um, I, I've, you're right. I've, I've examined her from different perspectives. So again, if if their time in Europe reinforce, reinforced their ideas, I think this reinforced my idea of Abigail too, a highly, highly intelligent person. Um, who has a genuinely um, optimistic nature. Um, she can be. A critical and cranky, and it was probably hard being one of her children. I think she was very affectionate, but she had very high exacting standards for her children, you know, which probably became a challenge over time. But I, I've never seen letters that were as descriptive um, and just make you feel as if you were in the place. And she says at one point to um, her sister, you know, I have to be in Europe. There's a lot of things I don't like here, but I'm determined to have as many experiences um, as I can with propriety. Um, and and so she goes to the ballet, she goes to the opera, she sees plays, she goes to museums, gardens, travels. She really um, wants to really soak up everything she can, often to criticize it, but soak up everything she can and have those memories. But when once she's on her way back home, she says, um, these weren't the best years that I've spent in my life, and I don't have any desire to travel anywhere outside my humble cottage again. So before we go, I'd like to ask you to read uh, from a letter that John Adams wrote to Abigail. I think it was dated July 2nd, 1776. Yes, yeah, so I'm glad you said that. As we're approaching the 4th of July, 
The Congress voted to separate from Great Britain on July 2nd, um, but we celebrate July 4th because that's when the Declaration of Independence was signed. But John was so thrilled. He was one of the major movers towards separation from England, and he was so excited on July 2nd after uh, they voted to separate from Great Britain that he wrote Abigail almost immediately, and I love this letter, and I'd like to share it with you. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoca in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. And illuminations, of course, are fireworks. So he was only a couple of days off. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks, Jeannie, so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to be with you, Carla. Thank you. Janie Abrams, speaking with our public affairs producer, Carla Jimenez. Abrams is a history professor at DU. Her new book is A View from Abroad, the story of John and Abigail Adams in Europe. To mark the 4th of July holiday, we're sharing stories of freedom from the founding fathers to the newest Americans. My co-host Avery Lill spent some time last fall meeting Coloradans who became citizens during the pandemic. One of them is Melva Herrera, who lives in Alamosa. Her parents brought her to the U.S. when she was a baby, but she didn't realize what it meant to be undocumented until she was a senior in high school. I mean, I always knew as a child that they would always kind of yell out, watch out for ICE. But I never really understood what that was. And until it was senior year, people are applying for colleges and student loans. And, you know, here I am asking my parents, like, where's my Social Security card? And they're like, you don't have one. You know, this is the situation. This is what it's been. And there just hasn't been any loss opportunities in terms of like in a pathway for citizenship. How did that change what you did after high school? You know, instead of looking to go to even a community college, I just went the route of trying to find somewhere I could work. So I did that for a number of years, just kind of working and kind of just not being able to grow within that company because I didn't have any sort of visa or citizenship. So it was a little frustrating and I'd get a little depressed from time to time telling my husband, like, there's no room for growth in me in terms of this document uh, missing in my life. So it would definitely help me back. Yeah, it can be really hard to get a pathway to citizenship if you come undocumented as a child, especially. Tell me about your journey to citizenship. So my husband and I got married back in November 2011. And, you know, we were fine. And then kind of 2013, I believe it was, where these new laws were coming into place and, you know, we were like, let's get this going. Like, I can't keep living without any kind of citizenship around here. Um, So we kind of 
looked around for lawyers and there was one lawyer who told us to go th this route of like uh, for battered women. And I was like, no, I'm not putting my husband through this kind of staining his record of abusing his wife because that is just not true. Uh, so we just kind of did our paperwork on our own and it was a challenge. It was a struggle, but it made our marriage much stronger, just kind of relying on one of each other. And it, the process did take us like a long time compared to if you would have hired a lawyer, maybe a year, six months, something like that. People would, would get their visas and such, but because we did it on our own, it definitely took years before I was able to um, get any sort of visa and I got that in 2017 in January so as President Trump was being inaugurated into office I was um, in Ciudad Juarez waiting to hear if I got accepted for my visa so that was a little scary being uh, out there on the other side of the border the unknown whether I can come back or not. So you went back to Mexico to apply for the visa? Yes, uh, that is the only way, as far as what we understood, that was the only way we could do it, is we had to go back and apply. And hopefully they accepted us, which they did, um, luckily. But yeah, you got to go back there and kind of present yourself. And what kind of visa was it that you got at that point? Uh, it was a permanent resident card. And so from there, it's a minimum of three years to wait, and then you can apply for the citizenship, which is what I did. When you were in Ciudad Juarez, was that the first time you'd been back since you were a baby? Yeah, that was my first time going back since I was a baby. How much did being able to vote in November's election play a decision into deciding to become a citizen now? It kind of just worked out that way. It's always like I grew up in a separate community from those who were citizens. And now just being able to participate in voting is like a huge deal to me. You said that when you were younger, you felt like you grew up in a different community than people who were citizens. Tell me what that means to you. So what that means is there's always limitations in terms of like success, like the type of cars we could buy, the type of place we could live in. For example, all my life, I lived in apartments just because we didn't have the means or the documentation to be able to purchase a home. We were always living with other people who weren't documented. And so, you know, we helped each other out. It was a very tight community because uh, most of my family on both sides of my parents is back in Mexico. A lot of the uh, people in the community that I grew up with I see them as my aunts and uncles and cousins. and um, So right now, that's my goal is to get that house, is to have that American dream, as everyone says, is get that nice car and that job and, and just be happy. Melva Herrera speaking with Avery Lill about becoming a U.S. citizen last fall. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what Herrera wishes people understood about the path from undocumented to citizen. And we'll meet another new American by way of Australia. I'm Ryan Warner. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
Snap Judgment. Storytelling with a beat. This is The Takeaway. I'm Tanzina Vega. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace. Welcome to Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is a special 4th of July episode of Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. As the country marks Independence Day, we are resharing the stories of new Americans, Coloradans who became U.S. citizens this past year. Before the break, my colleague Avery Lill was talking with Melva Herrera, who lives in Alamosa. Her parents brought her to the U.S. from Mexico when she was a baby. What do you wish that people understood better about the process of trying to get citizenship after being brought to the United States as a child who was undocumented? I would just let people know to just kind of be a little bit more understanding when it comes to meeting someone who is undocumented and just hear out their story because it's most likely not what you think it is. You know, people always say, you know, you got to do it the right way. You got to go back and you got to apply properly. But it's like, this is, you know, this is all I've ever known. If I were to go back and, because you always hear about people being punished and having to stay there for X amount of years and then they apply and then they still get rejected. That was always a fear of mine. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't want to live in Mexico. I wanted to be here with my mom and my dad and people would say, well, why didn't you all go back? And it's just like, well, they eventually had children here in the United States. I have my younger sister and my little brother. And what about them? You know, is it fair to them to take them out of their home country? Because my parents and myself aren't from here. And the funny thing is, is when people would ask me like, well, you're married now to a citizen, like, shouldn't you just be a citizen? And people just have no idea that The laws in terms of immigration are just, they're very challenging. And even at the ceremony, kind of one of the words that stuck out to me, it's like they found us eligible to be here in this country. And I was like, wow, I'm one of those people who are eligible, who are being allowed to be here and to live here and to have these rights. So that word kind of stuck out to me, like I'm eligible. Whereas, like, I've been here all my life. Melva Herrera of Alamosa. Her parents brought her to the U.S. from Mexico when she was just nine months old. She's now 31. She took the oath of allegiance to become a U.S. citizen at the Colorado National Monument last September. Avery met another new American this past fall, Mike LaRue. He came to the U.S., specifically Pagosa Springs, Colorado, by way of South Africa and Australia with his wife, Kirsten. We came in on a visa. I got into the U.S. as a professional athlete. From there, we then applied for the green card, and that process took about 18 months. Once we received that green card, obviously, you have to be a green card holder for a minimum of five years before you can actually apply for citizenship. And so almost five years to the day I applied. And then the process after that didn't actually take that long. So I think we applied in June 
2019, and I think by November 15th, we'd been sworn in as citizens. And so overall, I think it took a hair under seven years, but it feels worthwhile. It's one of those where you, you know you've worked for it, and when you get it, I think you feel like you've earned it. And is Pagosa Springs the first place in the U.S. you've lived? It is. The first and only place we've lived. We've traveled extensively around. I've loved Colorado right from the beginning. I I met somebody from Pagosa Springs in a race that I did in a part of the Moroccan Sahara back in 2008. That's kind of how I found it. So we moved straight from Australia to here, and we've been here now just over seven and a half years. And what about Pagosa Springs made you decide to live there? You know, it's got the best of everything. From an athletic point of view, for where I was at the time and my training, we're at 7,500 feet at the average, and that's kind of optimal for altitude training. We're close enough to the mountains. We've got the Continental Divide right next door to us. And then because we're on the western slope, the temperatures that we get are reasonably mild just because we're high desert. And so we're kind of remote and we're kind of rural, but we're an hour away from anything that we need. And how is settling into the community in Pagosa Springs? Very easy. Um, Open community, easy community. Uh, We started our time off here by managing a non-profit organization called GECCO. The acronym stands for Give Every Child Knowledge of the Outdoors. And what we did was we put on running races, trail running races in the forest here. And the proceeds from that, the funds that we generated from race entry and donations, we would send anywhere between three and five local kids on 30-day Knowles outdoor leadership courses. So, you know, we immersed ourselves in the community, made use of the large volunteer organizations here in town, got involved with Rotary and all the local clubs and and that. So the community was open to us and they were friendly and we've made some really good friends out of it. And like you said, you've already moved to other countries before. How has moving to the U.S. been different or maybe similar um, to your other moves? You know, I think uh, what we've liked about our move here, so the the move here was pretty easy. Australia is a relatively easy country to live in, and the transition across, it's really similar. We found accommodation, we found you know, a place to work, and so the opportunities are, are far greater. We've, we've had to work at it, and in some respects, it, there have been some tough times, but um, certainly the transition into this way of living, you know, based on, I suppose, the, the majority philosophy of, you know, your freedom and rights um, certainly has been easy and welcoming. So probably the easiest move we've made. And when you say there have been some tough times, is there one that comes to mind that you're willing to share? You know, I think the opportunities are here, absolutely, but you have to work on them, right? So nothing is is handed to you on a plate, which is something that I actually enjoy, right? There's competition and you're rewarded for the amount of work that you put in. That's not the same necessarily in other countries. And so, you know, just finding your feet, getting in at the lowest level and then working your way up, it just is, I suppose we've moved here um, in our late 30s. And so we'd, you accumulate certain wealth elsewhere, which you, you use to make that transition across. And so you're effectively starting at the lowest rung when you move in. And so you're a small fish in a big pond and just working your way up to your comfort level or or the level that you have been comfortable before. Uh, Certainly, 
is less easy the older you get. Yeah. And tell me about the decision to become a citizen. Well, I, I'm always of the opinion that, you know, when in Rome, be a Roman. And if you want to have a say in the community and the future of, of your well-being, you need, to, you need to embrace the culture. You want to have a say in how things are run. You need to become a citizen. And so I, I take that very seriously. And I like to contribute locally and nationally where I can. And so I think uh, for me, I came here for a reason to be an American. And uh, the sooner I could become one, the better it is. Every immigration path is different. It's different depending on what country you're coming from. But when you talk with other people who've been involved in immigration and other immigrants, what experiences do you share or what questions do you have for each other? I suppose just what made you immigrate, the process, and it's interesting to note, I was actually having this conversation with somebody else that it seems to me that different immigration routes have different processing times. And, you know, I couldn't have been happier with the processing time that we had. We couldn't have done it any quicker. It couldn't have been a better experience. Um, I know that for others, it's been maybe slightly drawn out depending on the on the route that you choose. Um, you know, those are just the, the conversations. Everybody comes back to the same old thing. You know, what are you here for? How, how did you do that? And what's your process been like? You know, and I think uh, the other thing too is we talk about the, you know, the process is, you know, you, you have to do the citizen test and you, you learn some history about the US and you have to answer some questions and the uh, you got to, you know, read and write and speak English. Um, all good stuff but not necessarily great for everybody when depending on your skill set and where you're at and your age those parameters might be harder to achieve for for other people right i come from an english speaking background and english speaking countries reading writing english is not a problem for me it's maybe not as easy for for others how do you think being an immigrant shapes your perspective of us politics Growing up in South Africa, politics are very different to what they are here. We appreciate, as an immigrant, everything that we have. I mean, I certainly, not having grown up here, I look at this as a wonderful situation, not regardless of the political climate, but certainly I don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I'm grateful for everything that we have here and the opportunities we have here. I sometimes feel that maybe, you know, and I've been guilty of this, that growing up in an area where you have everything and you're, you're kind of in it, people take that for granted or they become complacent or they expect too much. And what we have here is certainly way more than what a lot of other countries have. Well, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your perspective and your story. Absolutely. Ultra-endurance athlete Mike LaRue, a new U.S. citizen who lives in Pagosa Springs. He spoke with Avery Lill in October. As the nation celebrates the 4th of July this weekend, let's reflect on a moment in Colorado that shaped one of America's anthems. Not the national anthem, although some people wish it were. It took just 30 minutes atop Pike's Peak to inspire Catherine Lee Bates' to pen a patriotic poem called America. That was in 1893. Today, we know it as the song America the Beautiful. Oh, beautiful, far 
Bates intended her poem as a kind of prayer for a country that she thought had lost its way. According to Melinda Ponder, she's the author of Catherine Lee Bates, From Sea to Shining Sea. And Melinda, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Catherine Lee Bates was a 33-year-old English professor at Wellesley College near Boston. Uh, What brought her to Colorado Springs that summer? It was a very exciting summer for her. She had two men who the relationships didn't work out. So she was in really a lot of personal turmoil that spring of 1893. And her good friend Catherine Coleman, who was colleague of hers at Wellesley College, an economist, I think suggested to her that they come out to Colorado Springs to teach summer school. And uh, Catherine Coleman lived in, her family lived in Chicago, and so they would stop at the famous Chicago World's Fair of 1893 with its White City, a fair that was celebrating America's first uh, 400 years, just an extra year late, and a fair that really ask what is America and what should we be proud of. It had many American artists uh, with paintings there, many, many, maybe 50 by Homer, Winslow Homer, many by John Singer Sargent, Frederick Remington with his images of the West. And so they stopped in Chicago on the way, and then Catherine came on into Colorado Springs a few days of her friend, and came around the bend and saw the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And I know, coming from Boston, <clears throat> Boston, where I live myself, she must have been just thrilled to see that exciting Colorado landscape. Hmm. Yes, as so many were. And so in some ways, heartbreak is part of this story. She had landed uh, a teaching gig at Colorado College, and this, this was her first trip west. That's right. Well, Colorado College sponsored the summer school. It was just called the Colorado Summer School. A lot of high school teachers came to it to take courses. They could sleep in tents uh, under the Rocky Mountains to save money if they needed to, huh. to sort of beef up their credentials. And the the spa town of Colorado Springs invited its tourists to come to the classes also. And when uh, Catherine taught that summer, she was in what was then called Palmer Hall, Palmer Hall is now a different building, but this was one of the two buildings there on that prairie where she could look out uh, to the mountains and not many other buildings very different from uh, the leafy campus of Wellesley College with its lake. So we know what was going on for her personally. This was in some ways an escape from the, the pain of her Eastern life. What was going on, though, in the country at that time? Because uh, really reading your book... Catherine Lee Bates from Sea to Shining Sea. Uh, my sense is, Melinda Ponder, that that she thought the country was in a in a rough place, might even have been on on the wrong track. Yes, she knew that. She had helped her friends at Wellesley help create a settlement house for immigrants in downtown in Boston, and she was very aware, especially through these friends at Wellesley who were social activists, of all the problems facing the country. In the 18, early 1890s, there was a terrible financial depression, which was putting uh, people out of work. There was a lot of conflict between native-born workers and immigrant workers who would work for uh, lower pay. There was in, in Colorado, there was a terrible crisis over whether the silver standard would be changed to the gold standard and put all the silver mines 
out of work and all the miners out of work. And so there was a feeling people were just divided against each other, that the East was divided, East where the bankers and the monopolists were. Of course, this was before any of the laws against monopolies and before the income tax had been voted into being. So the East was seen as the villain taking the money from the miners and the farmers out West. And so it was a time of great turmoil. Even though she wasn't in Colorado Springs for very long, as the days passed, this financial crisis got worse and worse. And soon there were jobless men even on the fancy streets of Colorado Springs. And so, of course, she saw all of this. And this is July 1893, and and she and some of the other summer school faculty uh, go on a day-long trip to the top of Pikes Peak amidst amidst all the chaos and national tumult you're talking about. And um, as I mentioned, she was only on the summit for about a half hour. And she d- dashes off a telegram to her mother. Greetings from Pikes Peak. Glorious Dizzy. Wish you were here. Clearly, she was inspired by the scenery to write America the Beautiful. What else do you think was going through her mind? Well, that trip had been touted as a a chance to get above all the turmoil on the earth. (laughs) And and it it truly, it was for her. I think that she she looked out, excuse me, when you were up there, of course, you look out and you don't see any boundaries of states. And you feel as if you are up above problems. You're in kind of a transcendent realm looking out at the vast horizons. And she thought about the, the famous painting by Alfred Bierstadt that she'd seen in Longfellow's home in Cambridge, uh, where the great Manitou brings the warring tribes together. And she said, you know, she felt she was on the gate of heaven's summit, sort of the, that book was about. And so I think she just felt that it was time to speak up. And one of the uh, quotations I loved was from General Palmer, who had um, really created Colorado Springs. He said, could one live in constant view of these grand mountains without being elevated by them into a lofty plane of thought and purpose? Hmm. And I think she was inspired by the landscape and also by all the independent women that she saw in Colorado at the time. Colorado was about to vote uh, the male voters were about to give women the vote in state elections, and all this empowered her and and made her feel that she had something to say to the country. You write, she prayed for God to shed his grace on the nation, lifting it above its financial and social crises to a more ethereal realm like that atop Pike's Peak. Uh, but Bates never intended her original four-stanza poem to become a song. How did it become a song? Well, that's right. And so it, she, it was published actually two summers later in 1895 on the 4th of July as a patriotic poem. But during the, the next decade, people began, they wanted many more patriotic songs to sing. Nobody huh. really liked the Star Spangled Banner, and it was so difficult <laughs> to sing, as we know. And so they began setting her words to various melodies, and they began changing her words around to make them simpler to sing. And so in 1904, after this is after the Spanish-American War, after the United States had become a global imperialist 
And we were still fighting in the Philippines in the, the dreadful, bloody insurrection there where waterboarding uh, began. Uh, she felt that, I think, if people were going to sing her song, first of all, she did make the words simpler. And second of all, she added the words about brotherhood from sea to shining sea. I think she felt if we were going to acquire these territories yeah. um, globally, that we should get our own house in order. And also, a lot of the discussion about whether we should really acquire the Philippines was over racism, what was going to happen if the Filipinos could vote in our elections. And there it was a time, of course, when there were many lynchings in our own country. So she felt that the ideals of brotherhood were something that she prayed would be shed <laughs> and that we would remember those and and it was a prayer for God to help it, uh, it does help seem the like country. every couple of years there is talk about replacing the star-spangled banner with America the beautiful there have been some attempts even by members of Congress but those bills never go anywhere um, mm-hmm. and that's in part because the star-spangled banner is notoriously difficult to sing I think it never mentions the word America um so uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to just hear a famous version of America the Beautiful. You know, when I was in school, we used to sing it something like this. Listen here. Oh, beautiful, far spacious skies, far amber waves of rain, far purple mountains. Ten majesties Over the fruited plain But now wait a minute I'm talking about America Sweet America You know, God done shed his grace on thee Yes, he did. Heavy brotherhood from sea to shining sea. You know, I wish I had somebody to help me sing this. America. America. Do you have a favorite version of the song, Melinda Ponder? Well, I have to just say, you know, his Ray Charles version is so passionate and so heartfelt yeah. that uh, it just is so moving. And when I hear it, it reminds me really of the first chapter of Genesis, you know, that God looked around and saw everything that he had done, and it was good. And I'm glad Ray Charles feels uh, that the country is so good. But I have had people say to me, you know, I don't like that song because the country has a lot of problems. So I hope when people read my biography, they'll learn about the problems the country had when Catherine wrote it and, um, you know, think about the words she actually used, <laughs> hmm. which were not in the past tense. You know, she prayed that God would shed his grace on the country. Uh, and I think when you see the original version, America, that she wrote out here in Colorado, you can see it's much more sort of oriented toward the future than the words 
that she revised it into into to 1904. So, so what I've is what is your favorite? Well, I have uh, on my website. I have the uh, Indianapolis Children's Choir singing it since I first learned it in fourth grade in Indianapolis, and I just like a simple version that without any descants, etc. Well, I'm pleased to tell you we have a little surprise, which is your favorite version. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Linda Ponder is the author of Catherine Lee Bates, From Sea to Shining Sea. We spoke in 2018. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that inspires me on the daily. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to David Hill. This has been a special Independence Day version of Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.